And of course, then we recognize that what happens then is everybody points fingers and blames everybody else. And, and God says, well, I'm going to, I'll fix this. <laughs> and here's what's going to happen. Here's the curse. Woman, you're going to want to be involved in your husband. Your desire is always going to be for him. And then men, you're going to overpower her. You're going to control her. You're going to dominate. That's the curse. And we've called that, oh, that was God's hierarchy order. I don't think so. It's not what it says in Genesis 1 and 2. It's just not. That is the voice of my friend, Mickey O'Donnell. She has served in church world now for 43 years. She has two master's degrees and now serves as a coach and leadership expert to churches around the country. Mickey and I go way back. We both grew up in a little suburb of Chicago called West Chicago. Mickey and my sister Barb were friends and Mickey's brother Marty and I were great friends. I spent a lot of time in the O'Donnell home in my junior high years and I have deep respect for the entire family. Recently, Mickey and I had a conversation about women as leaders in the church and what that has meant for her over four decades of church leadership. She mentions in this podcast a number of resources that you might find interesting. I have put the links to all of those in the show notes, so you don't have to try to write it down while she goes. But let's get right into it. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. So, Mickey O'Donnell, welcome to the podcast. It really is great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to our time together. So, tell us, um, tell us a little bit for people that don't know you. Tell us who you are, where you come from, a little bit about Mickey O'Donnell. Okay, I have been in church ministry for over 43 years. Started actually in 1976. In, in children's ministry and working alongside in the pastoral ministry with the Presbyterian Church in Aurora, Illinois, it was kind of the first calling that I had was to be there at that church with my husband. I went to Scotland uh, where we studied together there uh, at the University of Aberdeen where I got a degree in philosophy and then came back to the U.S. and went to Trinity Seminary and studied a master's of religious education and uh, have served in various different churches, both in Scotland and, and in this country, mostly in the Chicagoland area. I was in the Chicagoland area until 2012, then was in Connecticut at a church there for six years, semi-retired in 2018 to take on the opportunity to be sort of a coach and a consultant in leadership development for churches uh, who are needing some expertise and some help. So that's kind of what I do now. I live in Florida where I'm enjoying the sunshine and my motorcycle. And um, it's just a wonderful time to be able to be a little bit more free. Um, and I'm loving working with the various churches that I'm working with right now. That's great. So let's let's go back to the beginning for a minute. Tell us about how you got into this or your, you know, we use this word calling or mm. whatever, whatever drove you into going into ministry. What was the, What was that about? What was that story? Well, it's a long story because it goes all the way back to when I became a believer, which was actually when I was about six years old. My father had had a radical conversion at a Billy Graham crusade when I was a young child, and uh, it cured him of alcohol instantaneously. And uh, as he went forward at a Billy Graham um, crusade and, and talked with Billy Graham, actually personally at the time. So this would have been in the early 50s. So it was, you know, when, when Dr. Graham was not all that famous yet. <laughs> 
So when I watch my parents really, really step out in faith and, and spend their time with the Lord, I wanted to have what they had. So as a little child, I just said, I want to have Jesus in my heart. And it was at that time that I really felt that God gets to use us. My parents, who were with Moody Institute of Science, Gospel Films in uh, Michigan, it, Moody Institute of Science was in Chicago. I mean, in um, California, in Los Angeles area. And then it was Gospel Films in Muskegon, Michigan. And then we were down in the Chicago area where my father started Lord and King Associates, which was his own film company. And we worked with Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. It was just all about doing ministry, but doing ministry with the gifts that God had given you. My parents had said to me at a very young age, when we moved from California, I was, I think I was nine. No, I wasn't even that old because I was, my brother Marty was just little. He was just a baby. So it must have been around six or seven. So I was a new believer, a new Christian. And they bought me a suitcase, a little white suitcase with a cosmetic mirror inside of it. And they said, Mickey, we're moving. And here's a suitcase for you. And let's remember that when we work for the Lord, we always keep our bags packed and by the door because we never know where he's going to call us. Wow. Yeah. So that that was right away. I was included in on this ministry, this mission. We were being called by God as a family. And I felt a sense of that God's going to use me. I don't know where it's going to be. Um, and of course, growing up in a child in the 50s, appeared that all, my hope was, well, I'll just find a Christian man who's going to be a pastor, and then I can be in ministry. Okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> then I can do that. And so it, that was just sort of the, the ethos of the time. And yet, I really felt that I was called to do more than that, right from the start, that there was more for me to do. And interestingly enough, I had a a nightmare as a child of a very dark face that appeared in my dream. And it was a, a face, the face or the person in it sort of called me like, come. And I, because I lived in, in Los Angeles, California at the time, and there were no dark faces that I was aware of, I didn't know what this meant. And it haunted me for many years, actually. And then I kind of let go of it. It just sort of was gone. In 2015, a, uh, a colleague of mine who we were students together at Trinity Seminary had built this wonderful ministry in, in India. I had, of course, as an adult, long time, no longer had this fear. But I, was brought, I agreed to join him to be in India to teach at a seminary with um, Mission India Theological Seminary that is part of the Reaching Indians Ministries International Organization here in the U.S., and I was sitting on a bench waiting to be introduced to someone who was going to take me from one location to another. Where I was going to spend a week at a Bible college. And the man that walked up to me introduced himself. And it was the man in my dream. Oh, my gosh. His face was identical. It, this is it. And, of course, he was, what, at the time, 42 years old, uh, you know, meeting him. So this is, <laughs> I thought, oh, my goodness, this is something crazy is happening here. 
and I have been blessed by being involved in this ministry of preaching and teaching in India um, since 2015. So, do you feel like that's like <laughs> like confirmation? Was was that like yes, like for you, like yes, I'm on the right path. This is the right thing. Yes, yes, wow. especially especially as a after my in my years of church ministry, doing what I was doing and feeling always a little bit suppressed. But there, this element in India just sort of released me in a way that was really unique and fresh. But that was 2015, so I'd been in ministry a long time by then. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you studied philosophy. Was that your first degree? That was my first degree. I actually okay. I, I went to Moody Insti- Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and took some Bible classes, just because I wanted some you know opportunity to do that. And doing children's ministry, we were, my husband and I were youth leaders and, you know, various different things. And as he was getting, going about getting his um, master's of, of uh, divinity at Trinity, it wasn't until we got to Scotland that he was studying his doctorate in theology, that there was this opportunity to study philosophy. So why philosophy? It was the only thing that was offered. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. They were offering a, a test a test sort of course, a two-year program for adult students. They'd never done a lot for older adult students that wanted to go back to school or do something unique. And so they did this two-year program. I was the only American and only one of three women, I think, that were even in this. There were like 12 of us in this, this cohort. And they just did this trial balloon thing. And at the end, I um, graduated with honors and was accepted into their uh, doctoral program if I wanted to go further in philosophy, but we couldn't stay in the country any longer. So, so you I went mean, back to the food. states, and then you did, <laughs> yeah. and then you did Christian education. Right. So, so we're now right. you're on a roll. So you're just going to keep studying. What was the <laughs> What was the Christian education degree about? What was that? Yeah, it was a master's of religious education, and my my um, degree from uh, Aberdeen was what got me in which is hilarious. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, wow, I get to do this. So um, Master's of Religious Education was kind of the, in the hierarchy of things at the seminary level, you have your Master's of Divinity and, and there's the Master's, uh, Master's of Theology, all this sort of stuff. The Master's of Religious Education was right down here. It was everything you would have to do for an MDiv except Greek and Hebrew. There wasn't a, an official preaching class, but you had a lot of you know, other things that you had to do. So it was great because I didn't want to take Greek, Greek and Hebrew. I had four children. I was raising children, and I was a full-time minister, director of children's ministry at a church, and I was taking classes part-time. During that whole time, because what was wonderful about being at the age I was and we were already serving in a church, I had this position of, of um, children's ministry, and I was studying religious education and doing it. So everything I was learning, I was applying constantly. How old were your kids during this time? Um, they were grade school and middle school. Okay. And then, so they're yeah, through high young, school. Very hands-on yeah. still. Hands-on still. Yeah. yeah. There was a yeah. lot of, you know, calls, you know, while I was at the office and riding bikes to, to the church and, you know, various different things like that. Yeah. 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 What have you found as a woman... In what's very much a man's world, let's face it, yeah. right? Yeah. Did you feel like there's there was a glass ceiling thing put on you? Did you feel like, you know, you could do anything you wanted? Or did you always feel like, no, I, I just need to stay in my lane here because the woman's lane? Well, you, it was just an unspoken rule in a sense that you just stayed in your lane. Um, especially, especially since 
I was a woman and I was also a staff spouse, a pastoral spouse. It gave me a little bit of, I don't know if you want to say leeway, but it gave me a lot less opportunity to do anything other because everything else was being handled by the men. I just needed to handle this. And were you a part of, I mean, it's a little different because, because you're a, a couple in ministry, but were you involved mm-hmm. in leadership at all? Did you have any say in what, you know, were you part of leadership team meetings and things? Um, in the Presbyterian denomination, this was, a P, this was a PCUSA church that I was involved with for most of the, those years early on, talked about women being able to be leaders, but there weren't very many then, you know, back in the day that I was there. It was sort of like you kind of had to really press in to sort of say that you had a valid reason for leadership. So it was mixed. There were times when I could lead as long as it fit women's ministry or children's ministry. And then we did start teaching a little bit about egalitarianism because we knew that the denomination kind of held that as being true. But the rationale for it was sort of on a liberal bent that I couldn't I, I couldn't agree with theologically. So I have this theory that, and I, I said it in my last podcast, so I talk about the fact that I, I've, I've come to believe, because I've been on leadership teams that were all male, and then a woman steps, it comes into the team that has an equal voice and an equal say in the team, and it changes the dynamic considerably, and I feel like we make better decisions because we're more diverse than we did when we were all males, but I feel like that diversity changes things. How do you feel like, has the church suffered because it's taken us so long to come to see some of this stuff? I believe it has, and I believe that it was never intended by God to be this male-dominant thing that, that encouraged culture even to sort of say women are less than. And so because of that, that ethos that sort of comp- continued to perpetuate itself, as a result of a poor interpretation of Genesis 1 to 3, we then had to reinterpret a lot of other things that happened in the rest of Scripture as God kept trying to show us that that's not how he intended it. Can you give um, us some examples of that? Because okay. that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Can you? Yeah. If you think about the fact that in Genesis 1, you have God creating everything. And he created per people. And he, he said, I create the creation of people were in God's image, male and female. He created them. Okay. So God's image isn't in just one gender, it's in both. It's male and female. There it is, God's image. And that was the perfection. And he said, rule over the earth. He told them to do this. And so they did. So this was the perfection that God had set up. Yeah, it wasn't, God, then, it wasn't God telling Adam, rule over the earth and woman, just follow along and help him. No, it it's, wasn't that's that not at there all. in the text. It's yeah. not, you can't find that in the text anywhere. Yeah. The problem comes when we assume that there was a hierarchy in Genesis 1 that isn't, that isn't there because we place it on it after Genesis 3. 
we place this hierarchy at, on Genesis 3, and then we re, in, reinterpret Genesis 1 in light of Genesis 3, which I think is the, the danger. And so in Genesis 3, which now this is really fascinating. If you really read the text, and people tend to only know about the text from sermons, which already bring in their own, somebody else's perspective. But just take a look at the text. And when you have the, the sense that God said, you know, don't eat of the fruit of the tree, you know, um, of knowledge of good and evil. And, it, you know, there it is. You can do anything else you want. Everything was given to them. They were naked and not ashamed. All of that stuff was there. Now, this is fascinating. I love this part. So Satan decides to play a trick and he says, no, 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 you can eat this. It's no big deal. You know, go right ahead. God knows that you will just be as wise as him, which of course is the first lie. You will be like God, which continues to be that horrible dominant thing that we keep struggling with in our whole lives as, as people wanting to be God ourselves. So that's the first thing. So that lie is introduced there. Eve takes it, sees that it's beautiful, takes it, eats it, gives it to Adam who was with her. Look at the text. He was there. He, she didn't have to go running around finding him and doing some sneaky thing. He was there. So he eats it. And then the text says, then their eyes were opened and they were ashamed. Then their eyes. She didn't see, she didn't have her eyes opened when she ate and went, uh-oh, I'm really in big trouble now. I better get him to do this. No, it didn't happen until they ate. That's the sense of unity of male and female together, God's image in both. And then their eyes were opened. And of course, then we recognize that what happens then is everybody points fingers and blames everybody else. And, and God says, well, I'm going to, I'll fix this. <laughs> and here's what's going to happen. Here's the curse. Woman, you're going to want to be involved in your husband. Your desire is always going to be for him. Some people in, um, interpret that as you're going to want to control him. Others just simply say your desire will be for the him. The other, and then men, you're going to overpower her. You're going to control her. You're going to dominate. That's the curse. So the, uh, the created order is this, equal, equal. And they're one. And when they didn't, the sin didn't, the fall didn't happen until they both ate. And then it was there. The fall puts it this way, man over woman, and this constant struggle. And then if we've that, seen that as how yes. it's supposed to be. And we've called that, oh, that was God's hierarchy order. I don't think so. That's not what it says in Genesis 1 and 2. It's just not. It's not there. So, and if it was God's created order to be like this, always only men above women, God would never have allowed for women throughout the course of history to, sh to, to have opportunities to do things and do ministry where God raised up women to do things, because that would be against God's character and his nature. And we know that's not possible. God cannot go against his own nature. So you can go back to um, Joel um, uh, I, I think it's Joel 28. I'm going to forget what, what the, the, the text actually is there. Um, I wrote it down cause I didn't want to forget, um, that in, in, in the book of Joel, yeah, chapter two, verse 28, 29, he says, I'm going to, in some time, I will send my spirit out and your sons and daughters 
will prophesy. The Holy Spirit will fall upon men and women. So all from the Old Testament all the way through, it's been, I'm going to try to fix this, roll back the curse, and I'm going to show you signs of how I'm going to roll back the curse. And there's these signs all along, all along the scriptures where it's where God has done that. And Jesus lifted up women. So we have to stop our old interpretation of this and take a look at all the scriptures that show where women I have, I have been given this permission. So why do you think we do that? Why does the church hang on to this? Because even still, Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Beth Moore is getting all this flack these days from the Southern Baptist, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. E- even still we're fighting. So so why do we hold on to this so tightly? You, you, it's, it's just a, a lack of understanding of what the whole redemptive process is all about. It's still wanting to maintain control. Men wanting to control. And women living in a sense of fear. And our culture saying, I think it was... It was it Aristotle or Augustine or somebody who said, uh, you know, women are just not as good as men. <laughs> you know, so in from, you know, all the way back from the Greeks, women are just not good enough. They're not as intelligent. They can't be. And we just continue to think that somehow it's been part of the ethos of the world. Here's another thing theologically, I think, is, a, is an issue, too, is that when people think about God, they don't tend to think about the Trinity. They think about the Father. And so because they say, well, God is the father, that means he's got to be male. They don't recognize the fact that, no, God, God, when we speak of God, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is no, other than the fact that Jesus came as a human being and came as a male, certainly because that would have been the only way it would have been accepted in terms of at that season of time. But there is no gender in God. And if we only think of God, and even the God the Father, in terms of that, that parenting relationship, you can't just sort of say, well, that's it. That's all there is about who God is. It's just God the Father. And then we tend to think of, we tend to hierarchicalize even the Trinity. Father, Son is here, and Holy Spirit's down here. Including the fact that we refer to the Holy Spirit as it, as opposed to He. These are persons. This is one God, three persons. So when we talk about God, there's no gender there. There's no gender there. And there's no hierarchy there. And there's no hierarchy. So these are things that cause problems all along. And because we have bought into the original sin lie, you shall be like God. It keeps us wanting to be like God. And that's why we have that dominance. That's so fantastic. I think it is so difficult for women in ministry to find the balance between um, when she needs to speak up to the men in power and when the better move for the cause is just to be quiet. How have you navigated that space? I could be a bull in a china shop. If I went into a Southern Baptist church and said, I am determined, I am an egalitarian woman, I have the right, I've been called by God, I should be preaching on this pulpit the same as that man. And they would not accept me. They would not want that to be that way because they don't understand it yet in the same way that I believe that I understand it as. But I can actually 
say, hmm, how can I help you as a church? How can the gifts that God has given me come alongside you and help this church flourish? And I'm not going to worry about that element of theology. Um, and I think I, I, you'll appreciate this as a, a comment from my dad. I don't know where he got it, but I say it's to, from him. He says, there's a lot of things in the, in the Christian faith that people want to build hills and die on those hills. You know, they just want to, you know, make these huge things that happen and, um, and then fight and fight and argue about it. And he says, and then, but for me, there's only one hill I'm willing to die on. Oh, wait, Jesus did already. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of where I'll want to, that's, that's where I want to stand is what will bring Jesus to people. I have wanted to be ordained on many, many times to be ordained in a denomination. But then I've been invited by other denominations who don't believe in women's ordination to come and teach there, to tell them about leadership development or um, children's ministries or women's ministries. And for me to insist on that egalitarian title would be damaging to the gospel. So I, maybe it's a little bit like Paul, who just, he says, I, I, let's not let someone stumble because of the way you're, the way you're behaving, you know? So I don't want to do that. So I tend, I tend not to fight over it. I fought the battle for a long time because I felt it was important within the denomination that actually believed in women ministry to lean in and push in and make sure that they were doing and allowing women to have those roles. But in places where that's not what they understand, they're more complementarian. I can, I can lean in and do what I can do to help them. Okay, so talk to me about, people want to explore this more, want to do some more reading. Can you make some suggestions on where they go or what, what would be helpful for them? What's been helpful for you? Several things have been helpful for me, from, from the secular world and some from um, the Christian community. You wanted to do more of the, I don't know, like the TED Talk thing, if you wanted to just listen to a 40-minute sermon on it. Jim Singleton, who is a professor at Gordon-Conwell, he was the uh, past uh, pastor of... Uh, a very large church in Colorado Springs, First Presbyterian Church. Jim Singleton has a um, a message that he gave to one of our gatherings in 2017 that you can just watch online. And it is magnificent as it talks about, lays out, it talks about the Timothy passage, the Corinthians passage, the, the problematic things, and then all the other biblical texts where it shows how God constantly gives opportunity to roll back the curse as um, Jesus, as Jesus did in his own coming in his life, death and resurrection and ascension. Mm. That's great. We'll put the, if people just scroll down in the show notes, there'll be a link. They can just click on it and go straight there. So good. that'd be great. Um, the two texts that were very important to, that have been one of them that was very important to me as a woman learning how to constantly just really do speak up and not feel like my voice is sucked away from me it is, um, by Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, when she wrote this, called Lean In, um, Women, Word, Work, and the Will to Lead. And she just really sort of nails the history of what happened for women in leadership in the business world. And she gives a lot of really good insights. She's had several TED Talks on this, and she's written subsequent books, but that was the one that was really significant um, for me. 
And then as a coach and a consultant, I've really found that helping, there's two books that have been very helpful for, for helping women learn how to talk in a, in a men's world. You Just Don't Understand is the title um, by Deborah Tannen, uh, Men and Women in Conversation. And she's, it's just a brilliant book that says, here's how men speak, here's how women speak, here's where they intersect and don't do well, and here's how they need to do better. And I, I uh, have led several church staffs, large church staffs on this topic because people want to do the right thing, but sometimes they don't realize what they're saying is as damaging as this. Now, this is not a Christian book. This is just a, a really good, a good text. Then there's another one, non-Christian, um, who is written by Liz Wiseman, and she is a researcher, an executive advisor. Um, she was considered one of the top 10 thinkers of the world recently. And her book is called Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And if men are still in leadership and women are coming alongside in leadership, men need to know how to make sure that they're not diminishing the women and the other men around them by their leadership style. And so we need to be aware of the things that we do and say that actually diminish each other. Developing Female Leaders by Katie Cole, Gender Roles and the People of God by Dr. Alice Matthews. She is the She's a professor emerita and former academic dean at Gordon-Conwell. Well, one of the other books that I think is really essential that's been very beneficial to me is a book by Dr. Cynthia Long-Westfall. And the title is Paul and Gender, Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ. And she does an incredible exegetical work on this. She is a professor at McMaster's Divinity College in New Testament. Those are, those are just really great texts to have along. Because I think women who are wanting and struggling saying, look, I've been called by God, whether you had a dream as a kid like I did, or whether you have um, the opportunity to serve in a church because your kids are little and you don't like what's going on, so you're stepping up and taking a role. Whatever it is that brings you into doing ministry in your church, and all of us are called to be ministers. We need to wrap this up, okay. but before we go, first of all, if you had a group of men in the room mm -hmm. and you wanted, to, you wanted to tell them, these are the things that you can do to help this, mm -hmm. what would you say to them? And if it was a, and there were women that were in ministry that were trying to figure this out, that were struggling, what would, what would you say? And there's something um, that I have told both men and women as I've walked through some of these things with them. It's a little bit, we're, we're living in this place right now where you do need to learn how to listen. And you do need to recognize that men and women do speak differently. So learn how to listen and then ask questions. For goodness sakes, communication problems are always about not asking the question of, would you clarify that? Here's what I'm hearing, is that what you really mean? We're somehow so afraid of just being that authentic with one another. That we're, that's why we miss each other. So it's good to listen, but then you need to sort of say, I'm not sure I heard you. Can you say that again? Or here's what I think this means. Could you, is that right? Be willing to do that because that will help you get clarity. We can't get clarity without asking the question and without being vulnerable that I might not have heard you correctly. And we live in a world where it's a little bit like what Ginger Rogers used to say about dancing with Fred Astaire. As a woman, I have to do everything that he does, but I do it backwards and in heels. 
<laughs> so men, if you realize that that's what these women are doing and women realize that is what you're doing and then come together and say, I don't want to keep doing this backwards and in heels. I want to walk side by side with you in this. <laughs> that's fantastic. So thank you very much. It has been an absolute delight to chat with you and to catch up after all these years. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was really my privilege. I loved it. Thanks. So there you go. I hope this has been helpful for you. This wraps up my conversation about the role of women in the world for now. But as I go, I want to leave you with a quote from the great Brene Brown. She said, courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.